Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, to the Commonwealth Club Online. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this important program exploring societal trauma during the era of COVID-19. In the Bay Area, the Commonwealth Club has, of course, suspended its in-person programming for now, but we're holding many live stream programs like this one today. You can learn about the upcoming live streams and view the archive at commonwealthclub.org. We also very much appreciate donations to the club to support our programming. And if you wish to do so, please text the word donate to 415-329-4231 or click on the link to the club's website. Today's program is underwritten by Kaiser Permanente, and we're very grateful to them for their support. It's the third in the Commonwealth Club's thought leadership series with Kaiser Destination, called Destination Health, focusing on the future of health and featuring in-depth conversations on the challenges driving physical, mental, and social health. Today, we'll discuss how to navigate the impact of a pandemic on our mental health and wellness and on the related social and economic conditions that it's creating. We have a terrific panel, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, California's Surgeon General, who is also a trauma expert. Dr. Rosny Daniel, an emergency room physician who has survived the COVID-19 crisis, uh, a pandemic uh, on a personal level. Uh, Saru Jairaman, who is president of One Fair Wage. And of course, our wonderful moderator, Mina Kim, news anchor at KQED. Now, to frame the issue of societal trauma, I'm pleased to present Mr. Gregory Adams. He's chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and welcome, Greg. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us for this partnership with the Commonwealth Club of California for this important and timely virtual panel conversation. There's no denying that we currently are living in an unprecedented time, a time of disruption, of fear, of loss, um, and, and people across the globe are being impacted by their efforts to manage their lives through this pandemic. The fear of contracting the virus, the fear associated with delaying care um, for other conditions, social isolation, the economic insecurity, all of this translates into increased trauma across the globe. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, a poll conducted recently, nearly half of Americans report the coronavirus is harming their mental health. Uh, I will tell you this, you know, recently the Memorial Day weekend, the issue was, what should I do? Where do I go? And I felt, as I'm sure many of us felt, kind of the limitations that are created by the pandemic. This statistic alone from the, the Kaiser Family Foundation is troubling and a clear sign that we should be concerned about the potential long-term effects of the pandemic. Kaiser Permanente, as many of you know, was one of the first healthcare organizations to recognize the link between trauma and early childhood and health throughout a person's life. As a result of through a landmark study that we conducted with the CDC in 1988. That study found the negative experiences in child, ne that negative experience in childhood have direct relationships to the poor health later in life the implications being obesity, 
diabetes, depression, and so much more. To date, we know that nearly 40 million people, one out of four people, have filed for unemployment. Our country has shed in a matter of weeks, decades worth of jobs and days, highlighting the unprecedented toll this virus has taken on our economy. And we know that research shows that job loss um, is associated with depression, anxiety, distress, and low self-esteem. There was a study done uh, of the Great, Great Recession in 2007, and it found that for every percentage point increase in unemployment rate, that there was a 1.6% increase in suicide rate. So this is an important topic for us to engage and to discuss for a number of reasons. The impact on unemployment, but also the, the, the challenging impact of trauma that our children are experiencing, that our adults are experiencing, and that many of our seniors are experiencing. So I want to kind of initiate the dialogue and thank the experts that we have here, kind of acknowledging again that this is an important topic. It's one that I think we need to continue to engage in, and it's one that we need to continue to study. So thank you for being with us today. Gloria, I'm turning it back to you, and I look forward to the discussion and the dialogue among our panelists. So thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. And again, thank you for your support. I'm now pleased to introduce our panelists in a little more detail. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris is California Surgeon General and an expert on trauma. She was appointed as California's first ever Surgeon General by Get Governor Gavin Newsom in January of 2019. Her career has been dedicated to serving vulnerable communities and combating the root causes of health disparities. She's the founder of the Center for Youth Wellness, an organization leading the effort to transform the way society responds to children who are exposed to adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs and toxic stress. Dr. Rosny Daniel is an emergency room doctor at the University of California, San Francisco, and a COVID-19 survivor. He is also assistant professor of emergency medicine at UCSF and Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. He has a passion for mentoring and teaching, especially when it comes to topics around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Saru Jayaraman is president of One Fair Wage. She's co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United. Ms. Jayaraman is a graduate of the Yale Law School and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And finally, our moderator is Mina Kim, KQED News' evening anchor and the Friday host of Forum. Mina previously served as health reporter for KQED's The California Report. Her work has been recognized by the Radio, Television, Digital News Association, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the Asian American Journalists Association. So I'm very pleased to welcome all of our panelists, and now I turn the program over to Mina Kim. Thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here, and I am so glad that we are discussing this topic, and especially with these three experts. It's really been on my mind. And Dr. Burke-Harris, I'd like to start with you to really lay some groundwork for this discussion. I mean, what is societal trauma, and, and do you think that that is what we are experiencing collectively to varying degrees right now as a result of this pandemic? Well, I think as we are, you know, 
in the, the middle of a pandemic um, that um, many, many, many people are experiencing this as a hardship and um, experiencing lost wages, lost employment, um, concern for their, their loved ones, fear for their health, you know, all of these things that are really challenging. One piece that I do want to highlight is that um, I, I, I don't want to take it for granted what anyone's response to the pandemic is. There are certainly individuals who are enjoying more time at home with their families. There are certainly folks who are um, maybe recognizing that they were oversubscribed before and taking more time to enjoy reading. So I don't want to um, uh, presume what anyone's reaction will be. And I don't want anyone to feel guilty, right? Or feel like there's something wrong with them if they're not having a terrible time. But that being said, what we recognize is that this pandemic presents a significant hardship for many, many, many people. And for a lot of us, it does rise to the level of trauma. And so when we look across a societal level, there will be a significantly increased number of folks who are experiencing trauma uh, and, uh, and also a much broader level of folks who are experiencing stress and adversity, even if it doesn't rise to the level of being frankly traumatic. And how does that experience present itself if you are somebody who is going through what you describe uh, in a, as a particularly stressful or potentially traumatic time? Like, what does it do to our minds, our bodies? Well, it can manifest in many different ways. But some of the things that we know is that when we feel stressed, right, a, a part of the way that happens in our bodies is that our bodies actually release more stress hormones. And those include things like adrenaline and cortisol. And they can have lots of effects on our brains and bodies. They can affect our sleep. Uh, they can affect our mood. They can affect our uh, ability to focus and pay attention. And they can also affect things like our blood pressure, our blood sugar, for example. So they can uh, uh, increase the risk for things like, you know, heart attacks or strokes uh, or having an experience or, of depression or anxiety. And what we do know is that individuals who have experienced significant adversity in the past, and especially during the sensitive period of childhood, are more vulnerable to having a negative outcome with, with subsequent stressors. And so what we see now is um, folks who have been struggling, especially folks who have been you know, living on the margins or, or um, you know, on the border of poverty or dealing with other hardships, um, when you add on top of that the additional adversity and hardship of this uh, pandemic, it can be enough to trigger um, uh, mood challenges, mental health decompensation, increased risk of, for example, relapsing to substance use, and then also increased risk of things like um, poorly controlled diabetes or high blood pressure. Is, it sounds like you're saying to some extent that it could potentially on children that uh, potential stressors like this, uh, potentially traumatic experiences, that they could have more lasting impacts on kids' minds and bodies in the long term? So I think it's true on children and I think for children and adults, if they've had a history of adversity, they're more vulnerable to having a negative outcome, whether they're I kids see. or adults. 
but particularly children who are going through uh, uh, high doses of adversity, right? And what some of the things that we're seeing now with the pandemic is, for example, intimate partner violence is going up, right? Uh, mental health uh, challenges and decompensation is going up. And so if you're a child and you're in a household where that is happening and you're also you know, away from school. So you're not with the caring adults who might otherwise be a buffer to that stress, right? Then what we see is that children are particularly vulnerable during this pandemic of having long lasting significant negative effects. Well, Saru Jayaraman, what um, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris has made really clear is that the psychological burden of this pandemic is not being felt in the same way by lots of different segments of our society, but also that uh, it's not being felt equally for structural reasons as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how low wage and service workers are experiencing this? What are the things that they are telling you about their mental health? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really devastating time for a much larger swath of the society than I think people realize. So I, for a very long time, have represented restaurant and service workers. Uh, we estimate that of the 1.5 to 1.7 million restaurant and service workers in California, 1.1 million workers are out of work. Um, and that's 1.1 million workers in California out of 10 million workers nationally that have lost their jobs. And I think what most people may not understand is that the majority of these workers are having trouble accessing any kind of relief from the government. So nationally, about 44% of applicants for unemployment insurance are being denied. So earlier we heard about a quarter of the country has applied for unemployment insurance. Well, that's great. But what we're seeing is that about half of those people are not able to access benefits that many of them, most of them, have paid taxes to receive. And so beyond the losing your job, there is the added incredible stress of thinking, okay, they're supposed to be, I'm told, they're supposed to be a safety net. But when I call, when I try to access it, I'm being denied. Uh, I'm being told I can't get it. For a wide variety of reasons, of course, there's a large population of undocumented workers out of that 1.1 million that know that they're not eligible um, and are dealing with very high levels of stress right now for a wide variety of reasons. But you've got an even larger population of documented people who are supposed to be eligible for benefits and are largely not able to access them, are experiencing some people have told us they've been calling the unemployment insurance office 2,000 times. They've been on days and days and days of calls. You can Im- imagine the, the mental stress and agony of going months without any kind of income. Now it's been months without any kind of income, being told that you should be getting something from the government and simply not able to access it. On top of that, you can imagine with that situation, what are you going to do to feed your kids? Your children are home. You have no way to take care of them. You have no way to feed them. We've heard from many workers, I don't even have the gas to go to the food bank to get food. I don't have money for gas to go to the food bank to get food. Um, And isolation. A lot of our folks worked in team settings. They were used to serving people. They're very 
this was their career and their livelihood. You know, they're now at home, very isolated, very stressed, <clears throat> unable to work, unable to find a way to feed their children, and not able in most cases to really um, get together with others to experience any kind of collective sharing or collective empowerment. Um, so it's a very, very stressful time. And I, I do want to say, because I know this is a health conversation and it might make us think there are health solutions and certainly there are health solutions, but my God, there are structural economic uh, solutions here that we, we can't, we're not going to solve people's stress by simply counseling their way out of stress. They have real poverty and starvation issues that we can address as a society without without focusing entirely on their mental health. And I do want to dig more into the solutions for sure. And But one of the things that was so agonizing in terms of stories that I heard, Saru, were people who were trying to access benefits and being denied because they didn't make enough money. I mean, can That's you right. explain what's behind that? That's right. Uh, our industry uh, is is uh, has has really, be- it's laid bare all the problems with our industry nationally. So our industry is both the largest and fastest growing industry in America and in California and the lowest paying industry in the United States. And a large part of that has to do with the reliance on tips. Tips were always, to Nadine's point, tips were always uh, a, a system that put this population of workers on the edge. This t- Living on tips is a very precarious Uh, unstable, um, unreliable source of income. And it forces a worker to have to put up with sexual harassment, discrimination, all kinds of other uh, customer biases in order to feed your kids. That was the situation prior to the pandemic. With the pandemic, what we're hearing across the country is that because I lived on tips or because I I lived entirely on tips, my boss actually didn't pay me a wage or I worked under the table I am now not able to access unemployment insurance because when I go to apply, they say that my wage plus my tips was is too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for unemployment insurance. So they're being penalized for their low wages. Again, adding to the stress of, you know, I thought I was somebody who took care of my family. I worked for many years. I worked multiple jobs. I worked very hard. And now I'm being told by the state that basically I didn't work hard enough to qualify for benefits that I paid taxes to get. And speaking of policy solutions, especially later on, that is something that California has at least tried to address. But other states, I mean, as you say, this is something that people across the country are hearing. Rossi, Daniel, I want to learn from you more about the unique stresses that a healthcare worker goes through. I mean, you're an emergency room physician, but I'd like you to start with your own experience of having COVID-19 and what psychological toll that, that took on you. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I of course can't speak for all healthcare workers, but I will tell my brief story. Um, I, I got sick really early on. So I was sick at the beginning of March. I caught the virus most likely at a conference in New York. This is kind of right before everything shut down entirely. So I was sick early on, and what was extra, extra kind of anxiety-inducing about it was that we didn't know much at all. I think that we've learned a lot more over the past several months, and at that time, it was kind of, it's really scary, it's killing people, it's really bad if you have, you know, um, existing diseases already. And I'm asthmatic and diabetic as well, 
So that was very scary to me. Mm. So being on a lot of text threads with my former fellow medical students, now physicians all over the country, I think everybody's reaction was to kind of overthink it and try to out-research everybody. So all the texts I was getting all day on these threads were about how scary things were and how many people were passing away and how all these medications could harm you and all these kind of scary things. So for me, although I felt sick physically with muscle aches, fevers, not being able to breathe particularly well, I was more affected emotionally because I was so worried about what was going to happen to me. I was worried that I was going to go to sleep and not wake up because I was hearing all these horrible stories about things happening. So for me personally, I think the biggest thing to start was all of the anxiety that came with it. And I have to be aware of all the things that I experience, both the bad things and the good things. And I know that I exist in a, a world of a lot of privilege and the fact that I was able to stay home. I was able to isolate from my friends and family and still have people bring me food, still have health insurance and still have a still have my salary. Nothing changed for me. So understanding how anxiety inducing it was for me, even in the position of a lot of different privilege that I have, I just imagine how much more difficult it is for all these other folks who are getting sick and don't have a lot of those privileges afforded to them. Dr. Daniel, you wrote a really poignant medium piece about your experience. And one of the words that I really honed in on was not just the anxiety that you felt around the, your own illness, which is so understandable, but you said you also felt guilty. What was the guilt? You know, I think the guilt for me at the time was I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know who I've, who I have affected. So am I in a place that did I get someone else sick who got me sick? What happened? Who have we exposed each other to? Were we not being careful Am I, you know, I, I feel very privileged and I feel like I could be helping people, but instead I'm homesick. So I think there's a lot of different things that were kind of leading to that feeling of feeling guilty about the situation. And so much of it was just the worry about, are, are there other people out there that are being affected more because I'm not there taking care of them? Or did I like leave a drop of a virus somewhere when I didn't know I was sick? What happened? Um, and I know physicians are so good at taking care of other people, but are, are there outlets for physicians to, to share those experiences readily? Like, is the culture of the workplace inviting of sharing those kinds of experiences? Or do they tend to be hesitant to do that? I think it depends on where you work. It's just kind of like any workplace. I think traditionally medicine has been a kind of be quiet and just do your job type mm -hmm. industry. But I think that's changed over the years. Wellness has been a big focus. And I think that people have learned how to express themselves more and how to have conversations. We at UCSF fortunately got paired with some, we, we got the opportunity to basically take part in free mental health care. So I took advantage of that and started seeing a therapist, which is a great outlet. We also spent a lot of time talking with our family and people that we're close with um, in the medical field about our stresses, anxieties, happiness, et cetera, just to vent like anybody else, you know? So I think that, we have learned a little bit better as a medical profession to improve on our ability to talk about these things out loud. But I do still think there is some aspect of, well, you signed up for this and well, you have to keep doing it. And it's a, before COVID working in medicine, especially working in the emergency department is a really dangerous job. It's an incredibly dangerous job. And I think we knew that going in, but I think that we need to recognize it's not our job to face kind of undue and unfair increased risk 
um, based off of issues about like not getting enough PPE, not, not having enough tests available, worrying about having to take the disease home to our families, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of issues that come up that we're still working on, but overall, I think it's probably gotten better. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, we've heard about a variety of different types of stresses and, and things that could be potentially traumatic for people. And I'm, I'm curious about the economic insecurity that Saru was talking about, as well as what physicians face in terms of trauma. But first, with regard to the economic security, I mean, is there something that you think is important for us to know and understand about the impact of that kind of stress on our mental health or wellness? Yes, well, um, this is something that certainly the American Academy of Pediatrics has looked at. Myself as a pediatrician, I've come to a lot of the work from that standpoint in terms of the impact of economic security on health and well-being, right? And um, that can, it, the, the biggest challenge with economic insecurity is that it compounds all of the harms, right? So for example, if you're, um, if you are feeling stressed, if you are feeling, um, if, you know, that activates the biological stress response and there's one piece. But then on top of that, the resources that you would access, right? So for example, um, you know, for families who are living on the margins, it's harder to access, you know, clean and safe places to be able to go for a walk, right? Which is an important stress buster or to have um, really healthy, nutritious food, which is another thing that's really important to be able to regulate our stress response. And then on top of that, if you are, um, if you have, if, if you lose your job and you had employer sponsored healthcare, right? then you've now lost your health insurance and you're trying to figure out how to navigate this process of, you know, d d signing up for, uh, you know, publicly sponsored health care and figuring out if you qualify and how do you navigate uh, this new system. Um, and then, and so, and on top of that, so in the meantime, right, until you've got that figured out, if you get sick, what do you do? You stay home. You don't go to the doctor. Right. And 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 that's a big part of the reason. It's not just one thing. It's not just economic hardship and you, you don't have, um, you know, enough money. It's the ways in which that compounds both the biological, social and mental health um, pieces into a perfect storm that drives towards ill health. Well, this viewer is asking, how much should we tell children about what's going on with COVID? I mean, it's so interesting, this question, because in many ways, these are the things that children are also exposed to and absorbing in terms of the stresses of their own parents uh, with regard to work. But, but I think this one gets a little bit more at communication, like how much to share and reveal to children about what we're, what we're in right now. Yeah. So one of the things that's really important is actually talking to kids about what's going on because they see it. We know kids are sponges. Not only do they see it in the environment, everyone's wearing a mask. You have to line up to go to the grocery store. You're not, you, they're not going to school anymore. You can't go to the park. You, if you walk to the park, there's a sign that says this park is closed. You can't get on the play structure. Like kids see it. They get, there is something going on. And if we don't have conversations with them with age appropriate language to talk about what's going on, right? Then they can invent stories in their mind. So it's actually really important to talk to kids about what's going on. And um, at the same time as we're doing that, 
the the two the, the three hints that I would say really important for parents and caregivers is number one, check in with yourself, right? As you're having that conversation, because if we're stressed, they cue off of that. And so being able to self-regulate and get ourselves in a place where we can have that conversation, um, using age-appropriate language is really important. And the third thing is helping kids feel empowered to be part of the solution. So what I, one of the things that I say to my four boys, right, is that, you know, you staying at home and having a Zoom birthday party instead of a birthday party with your friends, that's protecting people from coronavirus right? You washing your hands and I'll tell you all, you know, my littlest is four and he can sing two happy birthdays while he's washing his hands. You know, um, all of these pieces, all of my kids know that they are coronavirus superheroes and they're out there, you know, doing the karate chop, fighting the coronavirus by staying at home, social distancing and, um, and some of it, we make a game out of it, but it is really important to talk to kids about what's going on because there's no way that they are not picking up on it. Such a good point about giving them agency. I mean, if I can think of the, the thing that my five-year-old loves hearing is, you're such a good helper. <laughs> you're such a great helper. But, but that said, uh, in that same vein, are there cues that we should be looking for in case this is turning into an adverse childhood experience for them? I know that you've said earlier and made very clear that it, that in and of itself, it doesn't have to be. And I, and that's really, you know, great, great news to hear, but what should we be on the lookout for if we think it actually is? Yeah. So the things that we can look out for, um, number one, their sleeping habits, their toileting habits, if they're littler ones, some kids, Littler kids especially may see some developmental regression. Um, uh, so we can, you know, cue into their mood. Some kids will have a harder time focusing. Some kids will have uh, more angry outbursts, difficulty. Uh, and, you know, kids oftentimes won't say, gosh, you know, I'm feeling really stressed. Uh, instead, instead they'll, they'll be irritable at little things and they'll be, you know, bouncing off the walls. And one of the things I want to emphasize is that it's normal for kids to have a little bit of that. And we as adults and caregivers, when we provide safe, stable and nurturing relationships and environments, there are hugs being given out, like being thrown around like confetti at my house right now, right? So this is, um, that actually is, and this is important, that is biologically protective, right? So that actually helps to reduce stress hormones and, and um, release the, the healthy hormones that interfere with a stress response. So that's really important. But when you, if you notice that your child is really having, you know, uh, Ha really having trouble managing their mood, uh, really, uh, uh, you know, difficulty focusing, uh, paying attention if they are uh, low or down, if they're crying frequently, or for some kids, they won't have behavioral symptoms. Some kids, they'll have frequent headaches or tummy aches, right? Or their appetite will go way up or way down. And these are some of the things that we can look out for to recognize when a child is experiencing distress. So, Jaya Raman, do you, do you help refer um, your constituents to support services? And if you do, where do you direct them? 
Yeah, uh, we've actually had to build a lot of support services for workers because the times are calling for it and the kinds of services people need has changed. Um, so we actually started a relief fund for service workers on March 16th. We've had 175,000 applicants for relief. We've raised about $23 million to hand out in cash payments to these workers. Um, and then once workers started coming to us and being in conversation with us, we also ended up creating a legal clinic. Um, there are legal services out there, but we knew that our folks had very specific needs that had changed in the moment. You know, in the past it had been, my boss is not paying me. Now it's, I don't have access to unemployment insurance. It could still be my boss didn't pay me my last check. Or my boss didn't report my tips, and therefore I can't get access to unemployment insurance. So we had to create a new legal clinic to support people. We also worked with Neighborhood Trust, based in New York, to create a financial counseling clinic to help people figure out how do I ne rent, uh, negotiate with my landlord, how do I figure out my credit, or even uh, with this $500 I'm being given, do I pay the rent? Do I get groceries for my children? Do I pay my cell phone bills. So I have a phone. What do I do? How do I prioritize the very little money that I have? Um, so we had to create a financial counseling clinic. Now we're looking at tax support to help people file for EITC, um, which as you know, could be a real relief to many low-income workers, um, earned income tax credit. Um, and, and telehealth. We're looking at telehealth programs for people, as Nadine said, who don't have access. The vast majority of our folks have absolutely no access to any kind of healthcare. They never did. Um, and it was maybe fine before, or they thought it was fine before, and now it's a source of incredible stress. Just incredible stress to think, what would I do if I got sick or my child got sick? What would we do? Um, so we have been creating these services in part because the needs have changed. They've changed mm -hmm. very, very dramatically. What do you tell restaurant owners or small business owners who themselves are you know, saying, I'm on the brink, I, I can't keep folks employed? Like what kind of support can they provide to employees during this? Yeah, so we, you know, there are several things that we really uh, have already begun to, to create and push out. One is that we worked with Governor Newsom to create a program called High Road Kitchens that uh, provides a combination of public and private dollars to small business restaurants um, that commit to higher wages and greater equity in the future if they rehire workers and repurpose themselves as community kitchens, feeding thousands of unemployed workers and healthcare workers and people in need right now. And it's, uh, it's part of what I'm calling shaping relief in a way that shapes our future. The pandemic is stressful, it's a disaster, and yet the way that we respond, the relief that we provide, can be shaped in a way that allows us to actually fix many of the problems that clearly uh, were never right to begin with. I mean, let, let's be clear. Normal never was for my population. There was no normal for the lowest wage workers in America who also happen to be the largest workforce in America who are living off of tips and struggling with very severe race and gender inequities and sexual harassment. They were living incredibly unstable lives, living, as I call it, tip to mouth. There's nothing normal about that. There's nothing normal about that. And so returning to normal doesn't make any sense. We can't go back. We have to go forward. And if we go forward, that means we should be thinking about shaping everything from our healthcare response to our economic relief 
in a way that actually encourages change. And so Higher Ed Kitchens is an example of where you can provide relief to small businesses and feed people, but do it in a way that commits businesses to a better future. And the same is true, I want to say, one thing we haven't yet talked about, because maybe California is not there yet, but it will be soon, is that in a lot of these states, what we're now hearing from workers is, I'm terrified. I'm terrified because I'm being told by unemployment insurance, the state is reopening. My boss got PPE. They're saying I have to go back to work. The state is saying I will lose my unemployment insurance if I don't go back to work. But I know my boss has no safety protocols in place. And so I am having to choose between my livelihood and my life and my family's life. That is the choice that's facing millions of people across America now. And I think we'll be facing pretty soon in California. And so again, in that situation, how do you, as you say, both support business to put the proper protocols into place and workers, you A, ensure that their unemployment insurance is not cut off because they feel like their place of work is not safe, but you B, you create a system in which employers, if they're going to get any kind of relief, must commit to some kind of safety protocol, PPE, hazard pay, sick pay, proper wages, a commitment to future equity before workers are forced to go back to work. Well, I think you are addressing this viewer's question of what social safety nets are needed going forward to some extent. And I'd also like to to put that out to you, Rosny Daniel, because, you know, as an emergency physician, you see so much. I mean, if, if you could think about what this pandemic is revealing to you about the social safety net and, and what's needed, what would you say? I don't think it's actually, I don't think it's revealing much. I think it's more exposing things because we've existed in this place where there are all these inequities that exist already. And now it's just being highlighted. As an emergency physician, we take care of everyone. I, the common kind of thing I tell people is as a, someone who works in a trauma center, we have people who come in from a trauma. Maybe it's someone who is a low wage worker, someone who's working construction or whoever, someone who's out for a drink that night. They have some terrible trauma where they're badly injured and they're either have some brain injury or they're intoxicated, something that makes it hard for them to be there fully with their mental status. And we have to do a very big workup on them, including lab tests, x-rays, CAT scans. And the question we always get asked in that moment is how much is this going to cost? I think because a lot of those people don't have insurance, they're worried about it, which is totally understandable. Many people who have insurance are underinsured and they're worried about it. And the problem for us is that we can't even really give them an answer most of the time. I tell them, I don't know. It's going to cost you either $10 copay or you're going to be financially ruined, and I don't have an answer for it. So I think that that is just being exposed over and over in this setting where it's not just traumas people are coming in for. Now it's this disease that is having an unfair impact and much larger impact on our communities that are already at you know in, in worse places economically, in worse places in, in our society and with jobs, et cetera. So I think it's just exposing it more and more. And I did want to mention to Dr. Burke Harris's point earlier about kids acting differently in the setting of experiencing trauma. We see that with adults all the time too. There's people who are coming in with unexplained symptoms of my arm feels weird, I'm tired, my chest hurts, I'm short of breath. And they've had extensive workups, been seen by doctors multiple times. And a lot of it's just the stress that people are experiencing because of pandemic. Well, this audience member writes, in San Francisco, Latinos account for 15% of the population, but comprise 25% of confirmed 
COVID-19 cases. Of course, we've also, Dr. Burke Harris, seen such disproportionate share of death, rate of death among African-Americans who represent much smaller proportions of the population than those who are actually dying. And the question is, what impact will this have on the mental health of those communities? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, so, I mean, this is, this is a vicious cycle, right? Because what we see is that the history, the history of uh, marginalization in our country uh, makes it such that there are um, uh, certain groups of individuals are disproportionately uh, uh, likely to be frontline workers, which means that they're more likely to be exposed. They're more likely to be in uh, part of the es- essential workforce. They're more likely to not be able to take time off of work. They're more likely to be, um, uh, so they're, they're more likely to be exposed. In addition to that, um, the, the, if they've um, ex- experienced uh, discrimination, trauma, uh, adversity in the past, they may have um, a, a greater likelihood of having a biological vulnerability of acquiring the virus or even uh, having a worse outcome when they have the virus, um, especially as we know that previous adversity increases the risk for many of the things that we consider underlying conditions, you know, diabetes, heart disease, um, uh, cardiovascular disease, etc. And so when you take that and then put on top of that, the fact that we are seeing higher infection rates in African-American and Latino communities, right? Of course, not, not only is it uh, presents um, a major stressor, but imagine that every person who has a cough or a cold, right? It doesn't even have to be coronavirus. If you are uh, a, a frontline worker, a low-wage worker, an essential worker, and, and you start to have a cough, maybe it's, a, maybe it's the common cold, but we're in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. Of course, that's going to activate your stress, anxiety, and all of the above. So there's just really this way that all of these issues compound uh, themselves. Nina, can I add to that? Sorry, go go right ahead, Saru. Um, I think it's important to know that um, George Floyd, the young man who was killed in Minneapolis by a police officer who kneeled on his neck until he could no longer breathe, worked at a restaurant. Um, He was a security guard at a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant, and uh, was struggling with his unemployment, you know, was was laid off, struggling with unemployment payments was trying to get food at a grocery store uh, when this happened. All of those facts are um, incredibly representative of what millions of people in the service sector are going through right now. And, and, (laughs) And dealing, and that's exacerbated by the pandemic, and then dealing with structural racism that police brutality is one part of on top of that, which was a constant, um, it is compounded. It is compounded, but it's also a very, it's a very clear indication that all of these structural inequities are interconnected. Um, you know, you live in a low-income community, you're a person of color, you're more likely to be targeted and harassed by the police. You live in a low-income community, 
You're also very likely to work in the service sector and therefore have trouble accessing unemployment insurance and therefore have a, a very hard time getting food right now. So, you know, all of these things are compounded. And um, I was talking to Reverend Barber yesterday and he was saying, you know, it's, it's interesting. People look at that police brutality, that incident of police brutality, one of many, and they say, that's racism. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's one tip of racism. Racism is the fact that George Floyd worked in a restaurant, earned a very low wage, uh, had trouble getting unemployment insurance, probably didn't have health care. That's racism. Racism is structural, and it put George Floyd in the situation that he was in. Well, I think the other thing that, that this next comment brings up, it says, can you talk about the economic insecurity being experienced by medical practices that can't see and bill for routine visits and the struggles of community mental health agencies losing funding? The other thing that this points out is even if you can access it, whether or not it's going to be there is also a big question as well. I mean, I was just reading a piece about how schools are concerned about whether or not they're going to have enough counselors and social workers to be able to provide support for children when they return, especially who've experienced this broad array of potential, potentially toxic stressors in their lives. Um, and I, I know that we were talking about solutions some, and I guess in the meantime, Dr. Burke Harris, we have about 10 minutes left in this conversation. I mean, what kinds of tools, strategies, coping mechanisms do you recommend? Yeah. So, um, uh, in so s- starting very simply in terms of <laughs> coping mechanisms that that folks can access right now today, simple things that they can do at home. We've actually put together uh, the Surgeon General's Playbook for Stress Relief During COVID-19, and it's available on covid19.ca.gov, the state website. And really what we focus on is really the evidence-based strategies, things like exercise, right, like regular exercise, so important, things like nutrition, mindfulness, you know, like meditation actually helps to, to regulate the stress response. If anyone's ever thought about checking in with a mental health provider, right? Now is a fantastic time. You don't even need an excuse, right? Um, and, uh, you know, so, so a lot of that stuff, uh, we have two playbooks, both for individuals and for uh, caregivers and kids. And um, that's available. There's a tre- there are a tremendous amount of resources at the covid19.ca.gov, all the way from, you know, how to access um, uh, employment, uh, you know, unemployment insurance, how, you know, where to get tested if you, if you're concerned that you may have uh, COVID and, and you want to get tested. So we've, there's a tremendous amount of resources on the state website. But to get to some of the deeper issues, I think what we're talking about is the fact that um, As you pointed out at the top of the hour, the the coronavirus pandemic has simply laid bare, right, many of the deeper structural challenges that we see across our society. And uh, there is, you know, I and my colleagues across health and human services and across government, let me just tell you, I've never seen people work harder in my life. I mean, People are literally practically living at the state operations center. Um, but, um, but if we think that um, government um, is going to have all the answers, right? When we are talking about 
some of the issues of uh, structural inequities, right? When we are thinking, talking about some of the, the issues that are really uh, uh, deeply embedded in our society, that requires every individual to take up the charge. It requires all of us. And I feel really grateful to be uh, doing this work uh, in, in part, uh, you know, with the leadership in the Newsom administration. And I think that our, our governor has been really doing a very, very thoughtful job on this. But really, it's going to require, as uh, Saru said, for us to not do things as business as usual, but continue to look forward to what this reveals about how we need to move forward doing things differently in a way that protects health and well-being for all. I, I'm struck by this comment. You're speaking to the harder structural problems to solve. How do we deal with this as individuals, but with good advice that doesn't dismiss people and their pain? You know, as, as somebody who has the privilege of hosting forum, I get to hear from listeners directly about what they're going through and some of the most heart-wrenching stories are from people who are talking about how they are not able to visit a loved one in a nursing care home or can't be with somebody when they're ill or sick or just even the stress of trying to figure out how to homeschool their child while they're they're working from home. It, it runs the whole gamut. And, and so I, I'd just love to hear two things. One, Dr. Burkharis, I'd love to hear how people can distinguish between sort of normal stresses and when they are experiencing something akin to trauma or a, or a toxic stress that needs to be addressed in a particular way. And second, um, I'd love to hear what each of you do to restore common focus at this time, given what you face in your work regularly. Um, so, so Dr. Burkharis, if you can just start us off with that. Yeah, I'm happy to start. I will say, you know, speaking frankly, uh, for and even just this past month, not only have I been working on uh, addressing things as a Surgeon General, uh, looking at the pandemic, but um, a member of my family was in the ICU for two weeks, not related to COVID, but uh, and and I wasn't able to visit them. Uh, and uh, you know what? That Surgeon General's playbook—it's uh, it, really funny. I write it. It's really actually funny. I write it. My team and I drafted all this evidence-based stuff, and I myself had to pick it up and say, you know what? Now might be a great time for me to make sure I have that appointment with my therapist. I need to make sure that I go for a walk every single day, you know, that I'm exercising 60 minutes a day, and that I am taking the time to be present and be with my kids and say, you know what? There's a lot that's going on out there that's really challenging, but I'm just going to be in this moment and enjoy the, beautiful, the, the beauty of ha, you know, my healthy children and have gratitude and find those, you know, write down those five things a day um, that I'm grateful for. Because I think that the one thing that we do see in this moment is that um, it, with all of these challenges, I think we do have the ability to build resilience and growth but it really comes from focusing on the fundamentals and doing some of the things that are demonstrated and documented to, to make a difference. And when you think you need more, I, I imagine it's when you're really seeing yourself behaving in ways that are so different from-, from Yeah, and that's the, the one thing I would say in terms of like when to look for help. You know, we talk about um, 
I like to think of it as like red, yellow, green, like a stoplight, right? Don't wait till you're in the red to go look for help, right? Actually, it's great to, to think about what does, what does yellow look like for me? When, is it when I'm more irritable with my kids? Is it when I notice I'm having a hard time focusing at work? Don't wait till the wheels fall off the cart. That's why a lot of the, the programs that we have are warm lines, right, that are available on covid19.ca.gov and not necessarily, we have hotlines, but we don't want you to wait until it's hot. We want you to call when it's warm, when you're just not feeling so well. And you know what? You don't even need an excuse to call. Honestly, if you're feeling like you just need connection, whether it's your friends, your family members, or you want to pick up the phone and talk to an expert, uh, there's there's never a, a reason to, to not do that self-care because right now self-care is critically important. Rosny Daniel, how about you, Dr. Daniel? What do you do to restore common focus? Well, I want to say one, um, I really appreciate all the comments so far. I think that kind of wellness looks very, very, very different for everyone. I've learned that in trying to coordinate wellness amongst, amongst a whole bunch of residents and faculty. Everyone's is very different, you know, whether you have a family and spending time with them is important or you have a dog and spending time with your dog is important, whatever it may be is really different. For me personally, I've tried to continue to do a lot of things that kind of keep me sane on the regular, which is continue to exercise, try to eat some healthy food. Um, I've been talking a lot more on the phone to family and friends, definitely, and trying to be kind of open and honest about how I'm feeling. And it's always really nice to vent with my coworkers. Um, I'm sure everybody here has been in a job or had some employment where you just took the time to vent with your coworkers. For me, that always makes me feel better as well, because I think we're all kind of sharing an experience to a certain extent, and it's, it makes us feel better to realize like, wow, that was really hard for me too. This is what I'm doing, or that's what you're doing. Oh, maybe I'll try that. So those are kind of the things that I've been doing during the pandemic to try to keep myself sane as much as possible, and so far it's worked, so it's good. What about you, Sarah? You know, I really want to... Uh share what I'm doing in the context of that last question, what could anybody do as an individual? Um, and also note that a lot of our conversation today has been about individual experiences and say that a lot of the trauma that we've been talking about today, at least among the millions of people I represent, really comes from two things, a feeling of isolation and a feeling of hopelessness or helplessness, that there's not a lot that you can do. And a solution to both of those things is not actually individual actions, it's collective action. And as an organizer, I really have to stress that there is mountains of evidence, mountains of research that shows that people acting collectively to take action, to make change, actually makes people feel less isolated, more empowered, uh, and that they have some hopefulness about the future, that they can do something. And so we, we are training workers to act collectively, to say to their employer, we won't go back to work until we have all the safety protocols in place. We are working with consumers to collectively say, we support businesses that do treat their workers well and put safety protocols in place, and we won't support businesses that don't. Um, there's also stuff that policymakers can do. We're really encouraging Governor Newsom and the state legislature to look at cooperatives as an excellent, excellent idea to bring together millions of unemployed service workers and support them in starting their own 
cooperatively owned catering businesses and domestic care co-ops. I mean, there's so much that you could do collectively. Um, workers can fight. We can all fight for the future that we want and need. And that's what's keeping me sane is that I see a moment of opportunity here. Really, I see two pathways for us. Either we can go in a much worse direction because the pandemic has created a lot of serious trauma, as we've all talked about, or we can use this crisis and moment of opportunity to act collectively and demand something totally different and much better than what we've had all along. I can tell you, Sarah, that something that you wrote is something that I've also turned to for hope when you are so steeped, uh, you know, as journalists in, in the news every day, and it's not all great. Um, you wrote that the pandemic is both the gravest crisis in the service sector's history in the United States and also the greatest moment for transformation. And I feel like that can be applied so broadly. So I just want to thank all of you for being part of this conversation, for your insights, your personal experiences, and just being soothing and giving us something to look to look forward to. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, California's Surgeon General, Dr. Rosny Daniel, an emergency room physician and COVID-19 survivor, and Saru Jayaraman, President of One Fair Wage and Director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California at Berkeley. And today's discussion has provided not only some new ways to look at the subject of societal trauma, but also uh, as a way for us to support each other. And I want to thank the guys, thank Kaiser Permanente for their support of this program. My name is Mina Kim. I'm with KQED. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.